You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Albert Presto, Associate Research Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Carnegie Mellon. So, Albert, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me, uh, what's your work involved with the uh, Center, Center for Atmospheric Particle Studies? Yeah, so a lot of my work focuses on urban air quality, uh, and specifically, I'm interested in differences between neighborhoods in the city. So how is my neighborhood different from an air quality perspective than your neighborhood or, or my friend's neighborhood? Um, and so trying to understand what drives those differences and quantify how big they are and, and understand why they exist and then how that impacts people's exposure. Yeah, it's funny. I remember being in Phoenix many years ago and I, t- I spoke to someone about the weather and they said like the, uh, you know, during the day because it's a valley, pollutants come into the center valley and then at night the pollutants leave and they move out to certain parts of the valley so they noticed like i guess a diurnal variation big time in the pollutants that were there yeah and so that have you seen oh, phenomena like that yeah so some of it's definitely dr- driven by weather and topography so you know since i'm in pittsburgh we do a lot of work here because it's easy to work in your backyard um and in pittsburgh we have Pretty a couple pretty extreme river valleys where the elevation will change by about 100 meters um, very quickly, uh, and we get similar things. So you get, you know, at night what you'll get what's called an inversion down in the valley, which means that the uh, basically the air can't escape the valley and, and pollutants emitted down in the valley get stuck down there uh, until the sun comes and warms everything up and lets it mix around. Um, yeah, and so that's one. You know, meteorology is one definite source of these variations. Yeah. What, so what are the other major sources of variation? Uh, so some of it's just a lot of it's source activity, right? So um, I think it's pretty easy, pretty easy to understand that it's going to be more polluted, polluted right next to a highway than out in the middle of a park, right? So where the roads are matters. Mm. Um, and of course, the traffic on the road changes over the course of the day, right? So there's a very intense morning rush hour in most cities and a sort of weaker afternoon rush hour. Um, and then at night, there are way fewer people on on the street, right? But that's a generalization, you know, when you go to like a, you know, like an urban downtown or the central business district, you know, there's sort of high traffic throughout most of the business day. Whereas if you're, you know, in a residential neighborhood that happens to be next to a highway, 
you get the big spikes from the rush hours, but in the middle of the day, maybe the traffic's a little bit lower. Um, so how much variation has been measured, let's say, by the side of a highway when it's busy versus, you know, the middle of a park? I, I just wonder, is it, is it that much of a, of a change? Right. And so it depends on the pollutant you care about. Um, and, and so there's a, you know, a lot of the pollutants we care about are driven by the regulations that are set by the U.S. EPA. And the EPA regulates a handful of pollutants because they impact people's health. Um, and so one of the big ones is particulate matter. We also call it, hear it called PM 2.5 because it's particles smaller than two and a half microns. So something like PM 2.5, there's not a big change uh, as you cross a highway, for instance, uh, but the composition really changes. So you'll see a lot more black carbon, which is like the black stuff you'll see coming out of a diesel smokestack, um, you know, as you cross the highway, because you, that's a big source area for that. Um, or you'll see pretty big nitrogen dioxide spikes near highways where vehicles emit nitrogen oxides. Um, and so it sort of depends on specifically what you're looking at. But if you look at stuff, you know, specifically for a highway or something that's coming right out of a tailpipe, like carbon monoxide, you know, when you compare right next to the highway to the uh, to a, uh, you know, a nearby sort of park, you'll get like a factor of two or three enhancement next to the highway. What's, um, I mean, what's the correlation with health effects? Does this cause like acute respiratory problems or does it need to be a lot higher to be a problem? Or is it, you know, does it lead to more chronic issues if someone, you know, commutes every day on a certain path and therefore mm -hmm. they're exposed to that hour to, you know, three to five times the, uh, you know, the nitrous oxide is normal. Right. So uh, most of the most of the epidemiology. So what most of what we learn about health effects is from epidemiology, uh, and most of the epidemiology is on longer term concentrations. So sort of like an annual average, um, for example. And we know, and and this epidemiology really underpins a lot of the rulemaking that the EPA does. And so we know that the what's called the dose response curve is basically linear. You know, so if I increase particulate matter concentrations by 10%, my risk goes up by 10%, you know, and, and, and for PM exposures, we're looking at risks of cardiovascular disease and early death and things like that. Um, and so what that means is there's not, there's not really a threshold, right? If I raise the concentration by 10% or lower it by 10%, my risk changes the same amount, uh, which also means that sort of lower is always better. Right. And, uh, okay. uh, and so even, and then you spread that out over really big populations. Uh, you can generate a pretty big, you know, sort of public health response, either positive or negative. Um, and so that means even relatively modest reductions um, can have a big benefit uh, from a public health perspective. So even a 10% reduction in concentrations for, you know, when you spread that out over 100,000 or 200,000 people, that, that can be a big deal. Well, what's, um, I, I've heard that some gases crowd out our ability to take in oxygen, you know, carbon monoxide, mm -hmm. carbon dioxide, et cetera. So I've got a couple of questions here. So one is what doesn't change very much about our air that we breathe, regardless of where we are? And then what mm -hmm. does change a lot? So, yeah, you're sort of asking as I traverse the city, what, what pollutants are pretty stable and which ones go up and down a bunch? Yeah, which ones don't okay. change much at all? You know, and that okay. can include the basic components of air, nitrogen, mm -hmm. oxygen, et cetera. Or, right. you know, and the pollutants too. So like what, what really changes and what, so what kind of impact does that have? Gotcha. So, yeah, well, as you said, the major components, right? Nitrogen and oxygen don't change, you know, 
it's always 21% oxygen. Um, things that are really long lived, like carbon dioxide, you will see an increment in a city relative to, you know, out in a rural or remote area. But as you traverse a city, there aren't big changes in carbon dioxide. Um, from a pollutant, from sort of pollutants that we think of in a more traditional sense that are short lived and, and, and have sort of immediate health effects, uh, ozone is one that's pretty regional. So ozone is a, is a gas that's formed uh, from photochemistry. Um, so it's formed from sunlight reacting with uh, organic molecules and nitrogen oxides. Uh, and it's important to point out that up above, you know, in the stratosphere, there's an ozone layer that protects us from UV radiation. Um, but ozone that forms near ground level is a respiratory irritant and can trigger asthma attacks and things like that. And ozone, because it's formed from this sunlight-driven chemistry, tends to be pretty constant as you go across the city. Um, whereas things that are more directly emitted by sources, so these nitrogen oxides that, that come from vehicles, components of particulate matter that are emitted either by vehicles or by restaurant cooking turns out to be a pretty big source, uh, those will change a lot. Okay, and so are you looking at just the changes or are you looking at how they affect people or what's the specific focus of like, your research and your work? Right, so my research is mostly on the characterizing these spatial variations and trying to understand what's driving them. Um, well, that's what we've done so far. And, and really the next step is to take it to this, uh, to the health effects. So basically to, to generate a data set that can be used for epidemiology. Um, and that's, that's really where we want to go with it. Um, I mean, in the, we, we've been working on this problem for several years and, you know, we finally sort of understand, I think the urban air pollution well enough that we can start building data sets that allow us to, to start doing epidemiology, uh, you know, for different components or different sources of particulate matter at the intra-urban scale. Well, in some ways it seems straightforward, you know, concentration gradients would drive the pollutants moving one way or another, and you have sources which can be identified. I guess the sinks might be the hardest thing to identify and how the sinks change efficacy over time, you know, or depending on conditions and then what mm -hmm. that does to the, the profile of the distribution. Right. And I think, I think we understand the basic, you know, emission sources and then the physics and chemistry that happens when this stuff gets emitted and gets into the atmosphere. Uh, it, that's not really not so much the hurdle. Uh, the hurdle to take into epidemiology uh, is, well, there are a few hurdles. And, and one is that, is that atmospheric scientists like me and epidemiologists don't always speak the same language, right? So I'm speaking Latin and they're speaking Greek. Um, and so, you know, it is a real challenge just to basically start using the same language and be on the same page. Um, and we, you know, and, and there, there are just basically sometimes some biases about certain maybe uncertainties or, 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 or things that, that I, that, that I would look at a data set and say, oh, no big deal. We're, that's uncertain, but that's okay. Uh, the epidemiologist might look at that and say, whoa, that uncertainty is really critical for us. And so sort of making sure that all of the pieces line up to do that translational piece uh, is harder than it seems. I mean, I definitely, when I started going down this path, thought, oh yeah, I'll generate this cool data set and the epidemiologist will just be able to use it. Um, and that was hopelessly naive. <laughs> well, what are some of the disconnects? Where, where do you think they come from? Uh, What's an example? Of, yeah, one is just um, where what what are the sources of error and how are they characterized, which is very sort of down in the, the in the biostatistical weeds. Uh, but things that I think of as sort of normal measurement uncertainty, because from the epidemiologist's perspective, they're dealing with big populations, 
and have lots of other sources of uncertainty. You know, they want the measurements to be as, as absolutely rock solid as possible. So an uncertainty that I'm comfortable with just from a measurement perspective maybe doesn't sit as well with them or that they want to spend more time sort of characterizing that. Um, and that's definitely an edu- been an education for me. Um, I think it's easy when you're the person in the field measuring stuff to be a little bit of a technologist and say, hey, look, I have a new toy and I can measure this new property. You know, I found this new knowledge and, and, and expect people to be able to run with it. And, and, and that's not always the case. Okay, so error rate. Uh, okay, any other major factors that uh, you have to translate and explain for an epidemiologist? Uh, another one is just sort of scale, right? So we've done the, sort of the trend in air pollution epidemiology is to do really big national scale studies. Uh, so some of the recent studies that, that were published, you know, used a cohort of 60 million people who were enrolled in Med- Medicare because they had national data coverage. Um, and I don't have national data coverage. I have data in uh, three cities right now, right? So just sort of the scale isn't quite there. And so thinking about, well, how can we scale up? Can we scale up in a way that doesn't involve me sending grad students to the 25 most populous cities in the United States? You know, is there some way we can model this, uh, these spatial patterns that we're, that we're measuring? And, and so, and that's, that's something we're, we're working on right now as well. So what are some interesting patterns you're noticing and what are the reasons behind them or the mechanisms? One of the really neat patterns, so one of the one of the ways we collect this data is to drive around a mobile laboratory. Um, and, and one of the advantages you have when you're driving a mobile laboratory is you can basically put in all the sort of high-tech instrumentation that we would use in a laboratory, right? So we can use research-grade instruments. And, and one of the things we can do is we can measure this particulate matter and then attribute it to sources because we have very, very... Uh, highly resolved chemical information that we collect in real time. And it turns out one of the big, so traditionally urban air quality is a lot, is, is very much about traffic, right? It's very traffic dominated. Where are the roads? Where are the diesel trucks? You know, those are going to be the problem spots. Uh, and what we found is that, you know, obviously we know that cars have been getting cleaner for a long time. And it's to the point where, where in a lot of neighborhoods, the traffic is not the major source anymore. Um, and one of the big sources at, at sort of an urban or like a neighborhood level uh, turns out to be cooking. So if you go to a neighborhood that has a bunch of restaurants, you will get a bigger increase in, in particulate matter concentration than if you go near a highway in a lot of cases. Mm. Um, and that's basically because, I mean, there's a couple reasons for that, right? Is that restaurants usually cluster, right? I'm sure you can think of lots of places where you go, you know, there's a commercial district that there are five or 10 restaurants on a, on a, one block or a few blocks. Um, and then there are, of course, cooking for a lot of people. And restaurants tend to aggressively exhaust their, the cooking smoke, right? So they don't want the kitchen getting all smoky. So they have big exhaust hoods that vent things outside pretty aggressively. And so what that means is you're pumping out basically meat smoke um, that forms particles. Okay. So the, what are some of the ways to reduce pollution in the city? I mean, like strategic cultivation of green belts in certain areas, uh, you know, I don't know, changing traffic patterns, or I don't know what you can do with restaurants or commercial enterprises, but you know, what are some yeah. of the ways that it can be modulated? Right. So I think actually for restaurants, some of it is as simple as there are some filters that, that are sold commercially to put on these exhaust hoods. Another is just to, we've seen that it really matters where the exhaust is, right? So if you ever sort of so ever since we found this, I find myself walking around and looking where restaurants place their exhausts. 
you know, and some, you know, exhaust out into the alley or to the side of the building, just right out the side, sort of, you know, at head height. And, and some put their exhausts on the roof. And, you know, obviously we measure a lot lower concentrations of cooking particles when they exhaust the roof, right? Which is a pretty straightforward solution. Um, you know, you, I, I think you make an interest, you ask an interesting question about greenways and, and, and sort of, you know, com- you know, you can also, I think, lump in complete streets with that. The, the literature on that is, I think, somewhat mixed. You know, vegetative barriers don't really do a lot to reduce pollutant concentrations, uh, but they certainly make people feel better um, and, and sort of make them more inclined to walk. And therefore, if they're potentially, if they're walking, they're driving less and, and generating fewer emissions because they're walking instead of driving. Um, and so maybe in some sort of indirect way, that would be that that's another way that you can sort of manage urban pollution. Well, what are the major sinks for, you know, various pollutants? So the major uh, the major sinks are basically to get advected out by the changing weather pattern. Right. The air is always sort of being pushed through um, and then and then rain out. Right. So whenever it rains, it knocks a lot of the particles down and and and, and a lot of the gases are water soluble enough that they end up in rainwater. Um, you know, so it's for a lot of this stuff. Otherwise, the whole world would have become a choking mess by now, I would think. Well, dilute, I mean, so we, we're not emitting everywhere at the same amount. So there is a lot of dilution. And then, there, you know, it rains frequently enough to wash things out. Um, right. So if you think about a city, even a really big city like New York, right, there's a concentrated bunch of emissions in Manhattan. But, you know, the air turns over in Manhattan over 12 hours and it blows out over the ocean where there are basically no emissions. Right. So there's a lot of dilution that happens in that process. There's no other major sinks that, that you identify, but, you know, plants are not a sink, I guess, for carbon dioxide, but not for the other balloons. Yeah. I mean, it's a small one. You can you can have dry deposition, right, where particles or gases stick to surfaces. Um, and that is a sink. And off the top of my head, I don't know the relative contributions, but I my my recollection from a course I took many years ago is that that the wet deposition when it rains is, is a bigger sink and just sort of dilution. Um, and then there's some chemical loss as well. Well, what about the sun? I mean, the ionizing effect of the sun, you know, that would change the mix. So if something's polluted, if something's emitted early in the morning, mm-hmm. all day long, the sun can cook it and, you know, break it down and change it. But if it's emitted at night, you know, no, no such effect. So does that change the dynamics of what's going on and the chemical composition of the air? It it does. Um, and something about this. So, so sunlight drives a lot of the chemistry that happens in the atmosphere. Um, and so, yeah, definitely, you know, we started this conversation talking about sort of things building up in valleys at night. You know, when the sun hits those mixtures in the morning, you can get spikes because you get a bunch of photochemical production, you know, in this extra concentrated sort of layer. Um, but a lot of what happens, and so the sun does drive a bunch of this chemistry, uh, and you get different chemistry at in the nighttime, but sort of photochemistry is a long-term sink. Oh, geez. You're taking me to, I, I, I don't want to put numbers on it because it's been a while since I thought about this. Um, sort so, of, you know, generalities is fine. I just wonder how much of an yeah. effect it has. A little, a lot, it's unknown, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. But the sun is, the sun's important because it's the main driver for all the, for the chemistry that's happening in the atmosphere. Hmm. So, all right, so what are some of the, uh, you know, from the data you collect, like what are some of the remedies that you see maybe helpful that given city wants to reduce the exposure of people to a certain pollutant? If you're looking at particulate matter in a city, and that, 
we'll talk about that because that's the major driver of, of ill health effects. Um, a bunch of the particles you can count of as they're they're what's called secondary. They're transported in. Well, let's call them background, right? So a bunch of the particles are background. They're they were emitted somewhere upwind, but they're still floating along, right? They haven't rained out or anything like that. Um, and they make up a big chunk of the mass, and they're, and they're pretty constant as you go across the city. And then there's this variability that you get from these sources we've talked about, mostly traffic and cooking. You know, in some places or at some times of the year, you can get spikes from people burning wood for home heating, and you can get spikes from industrial emissions, right? Um, and so if you want to reduce people's exposures, right, one way is to turn down the various sources, right? So you can encourage people not to burn wood for heat, or you can put filters on restaurant vents, or the EPA can keep cranking down on vehicle emissions, right? Um, likewise, you can sort of lower the you can reduce the background, right? Which you can do that for everyone, right? And so strategies for that are controls on coal-fired power plants, which is something that we've been doing in the United States for for decades at this point. Um, you know, making the emissions mix that comes out of uh, a variety of sources less reactive, less likely to react and form particles that become this background. Um, and so those are sort of more regionally scaled, regionally focused policies that would sort of reduce the background for everyone. Uh, and historically, a lot of the regulations have been on this more regional aspect. So to give a, a sort of specific example, um, you know, we, we in the United States still burn a lot of coal for electricity generation. And coal contains sulfur. When you burn coal, you make sulfur dioxide that ends up in particles as sulfuric acid or sulfur salts. Uh, and so for decades now, the EPA has been pushing for lower and lower sulfur dioxide emissions from power plants. Um, and that leads to lower particulate matter. And that's helped everyone, right? So there have been big reductions in the Eastern United States and sort of this background particulate matter mass because of less sulfur coming out of power plants. Um, and this is also why we hear a lot less about acid rain now than when I was in school. You know, when I was in fifth and sixth grade and, 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 and we were learning about acid rain, that is not a thing that, that, kids learn about so much in school anymore. Um, oh, it's not, uh, we've, we've been able to mitigate it by reducing <clears throat> certain emissions? Yes, and it's mostly by reducing sulfur dioxide emissions from coal-fired power plants. Mm, gotcha. Right, and so that's an example of like a regional sort of approach, right? So it's sort of, you know, there are these big sources and we're going to control them and it's going to reduce concentrations sort of, you know, over the whole eastern half of the United States. Um, and we've, we're getting close to the point where we sort of max those out. Um, and so if we want to get further reductions, it's, it's, it's really sort of thinking on a more local level. So, for example, um, California just recently passed a, a, a bill that's called, I think it's AB 617, but basically it's, it's sort of the next step in air quality monitoring. It's, it's really about environmental justice communities and sort of community level air quality monitoring, uh, you know, taking some of the knowledge that, for instance, that, that we're generating in my group and applying that two specific communities, you know, where they may have one or two sources that are dominating their, their pollution burden. So what's the average residence time of a given pollution, pollutant in a city? So the air turns over or could be considered to have turned over. It is less than a, less than a day. I mean, I'm just trying to think, you know, so if a typical wind speed is a few meters per second, you know, you can ventilate a city in, in a few hours. So, um, is there a correlation? I mean, certain pollutants have a much longer residence time or not, and 
does that make them a lot more harmful? Like, you know, how do you, I don't know. I mean, how do you tackle this problem in a way that really makes sense and takes advantage of, you know, the lopsidedness of everything? What's the little bit you can do that will have the biggest effects for instance? Okay, sorry. You said the lopsidedness. What was I couldn't tell the word in the middle there. No, like the, the like the eighty twenty rule. You know, like oh, I would guess that uh, certain pollutants are far more harmful than others. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know uh, they have the longest residence time, or they have the shortest residence time. And there's trade offs. I mean, how do you take advantage right. of the inherent trade offs of pollution to to help people in the easiest way, the cheapest way, the most effective way? Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of you know good stuff are you getting out of these analyses that could really help? So I think you're asking a really relevant question and I'm going to give you sort of a dissatisfying answer. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's important to note that in the United States, we've really done a good job of cleaning up the air. So in a lot of places, the air is pretty darn clean. Um, And that's true. So living in Pittsburgh, I, I get lots of, anytime I talk in a community group, I get lots of comments at the end you know, you should have been here in 1950 or something when all the steel mills were mm. Um So I've stopped showing pictures of the 1950s. And I my historical reference now uh, is the year 2000, because it's about when I started grad school. Uh, and even since then, um, which was 20 years ago at this point, but even since then, we've made, you know, 30 to 50% reductions in a lot of pollutants, in some cases more. So in some ways, to answer your question is, we've already done that. Right. So coal fired power plants were really big polluters and, you know, partly through retiring coal plants and replacing them with gas and partly by putting controls on coal fired power plants. Uh, we've really reduced emissions from that, the, that source. Um, similarly, cars emit a lot less than they used to. Um, I mean, you can even tell it with sort of your senses that if, you know, a, if a car drives by that was built in, 1990, if you go to a place where you can find a 1990 car on the road, it smells a whole heck of a lot more than a modern car, right? It's, it's actually like leaking fuel from all the lines and there's a lot more emissions out of the tailpipe. It's, it, you know, the emissions from a modern car are much, much lower than a car from 20 or 30 years ago. So in some ways we've already done the 80, 20 thing and we're at the point, I mean, I'm here talking about, you know, emissions from cooking in restaurants from restaurant cooking in, in urban areas, right? Um, I have a colleague who was trying to, to figure out, do some emission inventory works, right? It's trying to figure out how much, you know, how much is getting into the air. And for a certain class of compounds, he said, well, we've, you know, cars are super clean. So that source went way down to close this mass balance to figure out the total emissions. I'm trying to estimate how often are people spraying the windshield wiper fluid under their windshields because that's now like the fourth or fifth biggest source for this particular species. So, you know, in some ways we're a victim of success and that we're you know, we've regulated the big sources and now we're getting down into the, to the really, um, you know, into, into the minor sources, the things that if you look at the standard EPA inventory that they used to group into other. And now if we want to make further reductions, we got to figure out what the heck is going into other. Well, for other countries, I don't know, from what I've heard, it's, uh, they're not even close to being there. And China seems to have a tremendous problem in the cities with pollution. Do you have any consulting over there or your mind is kept busy with what's going on over here? Uh, I've, I've had a few conversations with folks in, in China and India. It's not a, it's not a very active part of my, my current portfolio. Uh, but certainly the source mix there is very different. Um, and I know it's something that, 
as other parts of the world uh, develop. Uh, the question, you know, I know a lot of people are concerned about does, should a developing country take the exact same path that the United States took, right? Should you take the rapid industrialization, but really dirty path and then slowly clean it up? Or is there a way to sort of skip that step, right? Can you go right from developing nation and jump to sort of what we in North America have in, in the 21st century? And I think that has big implications for population health in those countries, right? Like China, China is a huge population and that's also aging. And so if you know, if you're able to skip the really dirty phase, that has big implications for, for how healthy that population can be. So what, what will be a happy result of your research in the next few years? So one, I, I have a couple hopeful things. I, one, one thing I'm, I'm really keen on, uh, to go back to this idea of sort of using some of this information that we're generating for epidemiology, you know, I'm really just keen to learn, are certain sources of particulate matter more harmful than others, right? Because if in the end we're regulating these pollutants because they harm people's health. You know, can we figure out that certain sources are the most harmful and target them accordingly? Uh, and I think, so that's, that's definitely one goal. A second would be to sort of think of ways of informing agencies like the EPA, you know, what is the value of trying to go down a more resolved path, right? So, and I'll try and explain that better. So right now the EPA enforces its rules with a really regional sense in mind, right? So Pittsburgh is dirtier than, I don't know, Harrisburg, but LA is dirtier than than both of those cities, right? It's sort of thinking about things from a regional or city specific uh, point of view and sort of, you know, is that good enough? Or do we really need to go down the route that California is going down and, and really have sort of this hyper-local air quality monitoring being part of the regulatory and enforcement regime? And I think that's a, a place we can contribute to, to understanding the, the relative value of going down that path or not going down that path. Have you, have you uh, been able to observe that depending on the um, the prosperity, the economic prosperity of a region of a city, that there's different pollutions, markedly different or not? I mean, from what I've heard, you know, legend has it years and years ago, the way cities were set up, you know, the south side and I think the east side were always in poorer areas, but because of the prevailing winds, that's where the, you know, the pollution would go. So cities were constructed in that way, but I don't know if that's true at all, or if you see those kinds of differences. Right. So uh, I've also heard that particular story. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. I mean, I, 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 I've heard it told in the context of that. That's why the theaters in London are in the West end and not in the East end. Um, so I know that if you look at a national scale, and this is not my work, this is, this is some colleagues of mine. So if you look at a national scale, there is what's called environmental injustice. Basically that people of lower income, um, people who are not white tend to have higher pollutant burdens or pollutant exposures. Uh, and that's true if you look sort of at the nation as a whole or look at just big cities or look state by state. Uh, because of the information we're collecting is sort of at the, you know, we're looking at the intra-urban level, we're looking within a city, we can examine if that pattern holds up in different cities. Um, and other people have done this as well. And in some in some cities, it's definitely true. There are some cities that have clear environmental injustice, you know, where non-white populations are systematically have higher exposure than white populations. Uh, it turns out in Pittsburgh, that's not quite the case. Uh, there's, as you sort of look across race and income, the exposures are pretty similar. 
there's a lot of variability in, but there's not sort of a systematic uh, increase as you go from like very white areas to, to non-white areas. I don't quite know why that is. Um, I think some of it might have to do with development. There's no, I can't think of any instances in Pittsburgh where they sort of decided they had to put the, one of the, these canonical environmental injustice stories is they had to put it, they decided to put it in a new interstate. And so what they did was they bulldozed a predominantly black neighborhood to put the highway in. Right. And so now all these, uh, you know, now this predominantly black neighborhood is has a highway in it and big source that didn't quite happen as much here. Um, our pollutant hotspots in Pittsburgh are uh, more aligned with the, where the industrial areas are. And, and, and there's, not like a strict racial or economic breakdown in those areas, right? It's not sort of all one race or all the other races as you're, as you're near those industrial areas. And so I think that's my hypothesis for why we don't see environmental injustice here the way we do in other cities. Um, but I think if you examine, you know, different cities, then you then that sort of opens the doorway to understanding, you know, what are the relative risks for different subpopulations in, in, in different places? Because not everywhere is, is going to reflect the national average. Right. Okay. Well, very good. Robert, what, what's the best way for people to learn more about your studies and your work and maybe get in touch? So uh, my website is cmu.edu slash particulate dash matter. Um, and that has some information. Uh, I've also published some pollutant maps for Pittsburgh. Um, and so if you go to breatheproject.org, there are some pollution maps that we produced for, for Allegheny County and Pittsburgh. Uh, that we made those several years ago. Uh, and then I am on Twitter as well. My Twitter name is, I think it's at Albert Presto. Okay, very good. Well, Albert, thank you for coming on the call, and I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.